As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Sebastian Schapper of SoCGen expecting another 25 basis point hike at the Fed's May meeting before holding rates steady for the rest of the year. This is what Sebastian's got to say at the moment, Tom, with the team at SoCGen. With sticky inflation, a strong labour market and a resilient consumer, we do not expect the Fed to pivot quickly. Brace for more volatility in rates and the curve. <clears throat> this is the tension of the moment. Again, we're playing this game again, the separation between what right. the Fed is guiding us towards in their projections and what this market is priced for. And this market is priced for a lot of cuts and, and, later and what, this year. What's important here is a stock gen heritage of derivatives where they slice and dice all of the different dynamics. So, Bonder, what is the dynamic of service sector inflation that you see right now? That's a very good question, Tom, because the tug of war is really uh, between the services side inflation, higher rents, uh, at least in the first half, which is going to really dictate what the thinking is on, on CPI. And we really, this week's report... Uh, in CPI is going to be very interesting because we might start seeing nascent signs of a cooling in the housing market, which is what we're looking to see. Uh, but that's really more of a second half story than a first half story. But, you know, the services sector, broadly speaking, is extraordinarily strong. People have jobs. Right. We got a very, very strong uh, jobs report. So as long as people are employed you're going to see more spending and more services-side inflation. So, Bradley, in your research note of a while back, you go all birds on us. You've got the Roger McGuinn, David Crosby channeling here, and you say, turn, turn, turn. Is that what we're doing right now? We're going all birds and two every season? We're turn, turn, turn? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big question coming into this year for us was, when is that turn going to be? Uh, was it October of uh, last year when ten-year yields peaked at four and a quarter percent? Or are we going to see another high in, in in yields before we start seeing a steady decline? Our view has been that um, you know yields peaked in the fourth quarter of last year, and then yields should gradually decline during the course of the year. But again, accurately pinpointing where that turn is on inflation is going to be extraordinarily difficult in an environment like this because. Um, you're looking at a variety of factors, you know, sort of the push and pull between sometimes higher energy prices leading to higher headline inflation. Sometimes it's it's certain sectors on the on the services side of the economy that are uh, that are pushing higher. Rents are going to remain high for the first half of the year. Second half of the year, we should see some easing in, in rents and shelter costs. But really, call it, causing that, I mean, calling that turn is going to be very very uh, difficult. But it it looks to us like. 
yields seem to have peaked. It feels like we have one more hike in the cards for the for the May meeting, and the Fed keeps policy stable for the remainder of the year. Why? Because of the fact that the employment uh, picture is still pretty strong. The labor market, as well as the consumer, are still pretty resilient. So really, the flow through has to come perhaps from tightening credit conditions, which is what you're starting to see in the banking sector a little bit. How important was that data on Friday that alluded to some of that, Sabadra? Yeah, no, it was very important in my in my view. We've been tracking, uh, you know, both the uh, the Fed's H.4 data as well as the H.8 data to see what the take up has been in some other facilities as well as what the deposit runoffs have been uh, from from smaller banks. Um, you know, I think last week, a couple of weeks back, we had you know Fed uh, Dallas Fed President, ex Dallas Fed President uh, Kaplan talk about um, the. You know, credit conditions broadly tightening for small and medium-sized banks, almost seizing. I mean, when you see this sort of tremendous amount of deposit outflows coming from the smaller banks, guess what? The smaller and medium mid-sized banks are going to really tighten credit conditions. And that's really where you're seeing a credit crunch. It's not in the, in the top 10 banks. It's in the small to medium-sized banks, mid-sized banks where you're seeing that sort of tightening of credit conditions or a credit crunch, as we would call it. Sabatra, I've asked this question a few times. Mixed responses so far. On Friday, what do you consider to be the more important data point? The H8 data that you alluded to just moments ago, talked about, or the payroll support that came earlier in the morning? I think both. I mean, that's what makes this whole Fed equation very confusing because they're trying to weigh financial stability concerns over inflation and employment, um, you know, being quite strong and, and inflation continuing to, to rise. And that's the balancing act that the Fed has to, uh, you know, play meeting after meeting. Um, I mm-hmm. think that they're going to really focus um, on getting rates to a certain level, which we think is around five to five and a quarter percent in Fed funds, and then keep policy stable while they assess right. financial stability uh, concerns. Across this arc, Will foreigners continue to bid for bills, notes, and bonds? Absolutely. I mean, look at what's happening to all the cash that's going out of the, the smaller regional exactly. banks into the into the larger banks. It's going all into into money market funds. Why? Because cash is is king. That's really where you want to keep your money if you don't know how things are going to pan out in a high volatility environment. And this is typical of end of cycle dynamics that you see in almost every Fed cycle is that the market tends to be very volatile uh, you know, because we don't really know how things are going to pan out. And in that sort of environment, it's, it probably makes sense to put your money in cash. And this time, relative to past cycles, you're actually getting a pretty decent return in putting your money into money market funds. So you're seeing this rush to, rush to put money into money market funds. You're seeing demand from uh, foreign investors for, for short-term investments. <clears throat> On a duration-adjusted basis, your returns are pretty good by being in, in the very, very front end of the Treasury curve. I look at the Treasury curve, and uh, you know, I'm sorry. Give me the mystery here of curve disinversion. John, that's the one thing not in the literature right now. I had a massive is a vision, recently, Tom. Yeah, is a vision of where's, where's the curve inversion going to be in six months or a year? I'm not hearing about this. So we've actually looked at past cycles, and what we notice is that typically uh, when uh, the curve inverts or where peak inversion is, and then about after peak inversion, about six months after that is when 
the Fed's policy starts to to pivot. So I think we've probably seen peak inversion. We've seen a pretty dramatic rise in the, in the two cents part of the yield curve and the steepening of the yield curve. That tends to be sort of a leading indicator, in my view, of, of the risk of, of a recession or a meaningful slowdown in the economy. So again, you know, peak inversion uh, looks like it's behind us. If, uh, if policy is, um, is on a, a pivot, this is kind of, you're getting, you're starting to see nascent signs, if you will, of, of a switch in, in, in the policy from hiking to perhaps more uh, easing posture or easing bias, if you will. Sabatra, wonderful to get your view on this bond market as always. Thanks for being with us. Sabatra, the Japa there of SogGen. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. With us this morning, around the table, I'm pleased to say Peter Chair, Head of Macro Strategy at Academy Securities. Morning, Pete. Morning, John. What do you make of that payroll report on Friday? Leaves the door open, green light for the Fed to go again May 3rd? Yeah, I think there were some mixed parts of the data, but if the Fed wants to go, they've got the excuse to go 25 bips. We've got a lot more data coming out. I think they should have stopped. I think they should have passed last time and just said, hey, let's see what goes on with the banking, because I think that's a bigger concern. But they seem intent on driving right. rates higher, so they'll use that. Lori Calvacino looks to neutral. Urian Timmer uh, says, you know, there's a set of fears out there, which leads to just nowhere. I love what you say. You call it the comfort zone. Define the comfort zone right now. No, I think we're all waiting to see how the economic data plays out. It's generally been weak. It's been turning back down after a really strong string. And finally, we get to the earnings. I think the earnings are what's going to actually drive it. The biggest thing I'm looking for in this kind of comfort zone is to see how company, how the market responds to, say, weak earnings. Do we get a huge bounce on weak earnings? That'll tell me that I'm being too bearish. If we actually don't respond right. well to earnings, then I think that we head lower. Is it 10 stocks, 7 stocks, 20 stocks, or can it broaden out given a more optimistic tone? No, I think the market's still going to take its cues from those 10 to 20 stocks that we've been looking to for a while. I think you can hide out and do very well in some of these stocks that have underperformed. I'm certainly looking at like the Russell 2000 versus the NASDAQ 100. The underperformance has been stark and it's been unusual because high yields done well. And usually if the Russell 2000 is doing well, high yields struggling for that tends to be a correlation. So maybe that's what we get. Does he know Bramo's not here? He's <laughs> he does. High he's aware. Okay. But that's why he's doing it, just to fill in and give <clears throat> okay. credit some air time. Okay. Uh, Pete, talk to me about bank lending data. The bank lending data that we got on Friday. How important is that going to be for this market going forward? So some people will take the fact that the banks are borrowing less from the emergency facilities as a good sign. I would agree with that, except we saw a big plummet in bank lending as a whole. So I think banks are pulling back on the lending, which is why they don't need to borrow as much. That's negative. And we also saw the 10th straight week of deposit outflows. So there was, I believe, 65, 67 billion of deposit outflows. And my concern is that we've shifted from a credit risk concern to just like, wow, my bank's only paying 0.2% or 0.4%. I can get three 
three, three and a half, four percent relatively easy. So I think you see that drain on the banking system continue. That's going to affect lending. So this is just a slow burn, I think, and it's going to be a big headwind for the economy. Why do you believe that's a signal of what's to come and not just a reflection of what's happened over the last month? You know, I think part of it is I tend to view these things as cycles, right? So we get this negative data. Everyone's worried about banks. Everyone's worried about defaults. So you go into panic mode. Then you take it back. Now you get that time. Okay, maybe we have too much money sitting in bank deposits. What do we do with it? And that's a multi-week, maybe a multi-month process for a lot of corporations to go through, right? We've got to figure out, can we do it? How do we manage this? So I think that's a slower process, but that's the phase that we've moved into. And a lot of that's just coming from discussions with customers. I've got to ask you, because more than anyone in global Wall Street, you have, Admiral, you have Academy Securities, you have a military vision, a set of board uh, people completely tied into geopolitics, which is what we're hearing about each and every day. James Stravitas wrote 2034. Are we there now is what he wrote about that would be out there somewhere. Does your board think it's now and how does that play into the investment guess? So yeah, we've got the 19 retired generals and admirals who serve as this geopolitical intelligence group. We see the world probably as the most dangerous it's been in a long time. And whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether we're now seeing tensions pick up in the Middle East with Iran, we do not like the fact that China seems to be getting the Saudis to embrace China a little bit more, pulling us away. So everywhere we look, I think there's this danger it's growing. And I'm getting a little bit nervous that a lot of investors pay lip service to geopolitical risk, but then kind of push it off. Oh, this is too far down the future. Oh, this is five years away, 10 years away. Oh, this, I'm an American company. How does this impact me? Well, it's going to impact rates. It's going to impact everything. So I think we're being a little bit too complacent on the geopolitical front. Gold over 2000. And yet Peter Shear is saying, look at the Russell 2000. Which 2000 do I want to own? Gold or the speculation of the Russell 2000? You know, for now, I think probably neither. I can watch gold. I try not to get too involved in gold. It's almost a religion to me. So I I just, I never feel like I've got a good handle on gold. On the Russell 2000, I'm watching. I want to see how earnings come. I'm a little bit bearish on stocks. But if I get positive, that's where I jump into. Uh, Pete, you mentioned that maybe people were underestimating, underappreciating what was developing on the geopolitical front. Well, let me ask you the question, what should people be doing? And I think that's what they struggle with. They see the news over the weekend, military drills, military exercises from China around the island of Taiwan. People have sit here and say, seen it before, it's important, I'll keep an eye on it. What are they meant to do? You know, I think you're supposed to be lightening up on some of the tech companies. They will be most effective if anything happens there. We don't see anything imminent happening there, yet there's this further, you know, element of fear. I think you're supposed to be looking, though, to South America, Mexico, countries that we are ultimately going to have to shift production to. I think Wait, are, big are you oppor- telling me to sell Apple and go long Bolivia? I don't talk about any individual stocks, but I'm certainly <laughs> lightening up on QQQ, for example. Are you lightening up? Okay, let me put, you can't talk about single names, so let me phrase it in another way. Are you lightening up on companies that have direct exposure to China, to the mainland, tech firms, in that sense? You're yeah. lightening up on chip makers that get caught up in the crosshairs of all this? A little bit of How part are you thinking it? about it? I think that's a little part of it. It's also more driven right now by the fact that I think people are expecting this lower rates end of Fed to, you know, juice up all these stocks just like it did in 2020, I don't think that's going to play out the same way. So I'm thinking we're going to get some earnings, we're going to get some fear coming out of those companies. So on the long side then, when you say get long some of these Latin American stories, the nearshoring, so to speak, is that an FX trade? Is that a bonds trade? Is that an equity trade? What is that? I think you can do it a little bit of each. I think you're going to have closer relationships and I don't think it's an urgent trade. You don't have to put all your money in there, but you want to be kind of trading those from the long side and building and accumulating a larger position. Mexico's 
got its own set of dangers. It's, you know, basically at some point we're going to have civil war is probably too strong, but either the cartel is going to have to get pushed back on to have the real development or that's also going to be a problem. So there, there's no easy answer. But the, with the, these geopolitical tensions, whether it's across this border, that border, the other, or distant and removed, doesn't global Wall Street find comfort in American equities? It On helped. an institutional basis, what's the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund going to do at the margin? So I think they are going to do that, but I think they're going to add more and more into fixed income, more and more into safe stocks, not necessarily the growth stocks. I still believe that there's this somehow hope that we are going to renormalize with China, right? Every Chinese headline that talks about some sort of renormalization, reopening China, but gets really treated highly well. Everyone likes that. And yet we've had a steady trend away from China. And to me, the, with Taiwan, the one thing that's really accelerating is people reconsidering how they think about Southeast Asia as a whole, right? This isn't back if we look two years ago. If you weren't going to produce in China, you were likely to produce in Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, somewhere there. Companies who have the time are thinking of moving away from that area because it is clear that China has that ability to, ability to flex their might. They've developed what we call this blue water navy. So a brown water navy is what China used to have, which is really a coastal navy. They are able to project their power much further into this blue water navy. They've set up the South Sea Islands. They've worked with the Solomon Islands to get plans. So I think you've got to be a little bit aware of their ability to blockade the region, to do things like that. Why bother in this day and age when there are alternatives? Pete, this was great. Just fascinating going into earnings season and <clears> thinking <throat> about some of these geopolitical issues as well. Peter Chair there of Academy Securities. And right now we get lucky as previously booked with us, but let me tell you, I'd be di dialing 1-800-Mizzou right now. Stephen Rusciuto joins Chief Economist at Mizzou. Stephen, just perfect time to have you on. I guess we can outdo guesstimates of 2, 2.2, 2 2.6, 3% GDP, but I'm going to call that out of the textbooks a global recession. Are we heading for global recession, even with buoyant China and India growth? I think what we're going to discover is that the industrialized economies are suffering to a great degree. And I don't think the rebound in China is going to be enough because even though there is an opening up of China and there will be some rebound in underlying economic activity, the a greater grip that the Communist Party has over the economy, I think, will limit its ability to really surprise to the upside. And that will wind up being a continuous headwind for the global economic environment. With that backdrop, is the central banker to the world more restrictive than he thinks he is? Into the May 3rd press conference, does Jerome Powell face a forward restriction that's not priced into markets? Well, that's a good question. I think what you're really getting at in here is what is the right path for monetary policy at this juncture? The market seems to continue to believe that they're going to raise rates one more time, and that'll break something, and we'll wind up with break something even bigger than we've already broken, and that'll create an environment where they'll be forced to cut interest rates later this year. I think the prudent path for monetary policy, and I think the debate that comes out of this week's FOMC minutes will lay the groundwork for the fact that 
it's more likely to be a pause with holding open the door or the window right. for additional rate hikes down the road. Well, this is right where we have to go because this came up, I'm going to say, five, six, seven days ago. What Mr. Rusciuto is talking about there, folks, is are we asymmetric in our view given an action, a tangible action by a central bank? So, Stephen, they come out and they say pause, and I would say the reigning school of thought is echoed by Matt Lozzetti over Deutsche Bank, is if you pause, your next step asymmetrically has to be a cut. You don't agree with that? I don't agree with that at all, no. I think you have to let the dust settle, and I think the details that you got out of the labor market report last Friday, and I think the way the inflation numbers this week and even the retail sales numbers at the end of the week are going to unfold, are going to tell you that there's a lot more resilience in this economy than you thought. Now, I still think you're going to go into a second half recession, but not all recessions are created equal. Some recessions are very, very shallow recessions. Some recessions are very, very deep recessions, and I think most people in this market right now only remember deep recessions. They don't really remember shallow recessions. If you go back to even the 2020 recession, it was a very, very shallow recession. Uh, and there was a bit more of a systemic credit crunch in that than right. there is in this environment. There's a lot of idiosyncratic risk, but there's the key difference. Uh, John Taylor at Stanford has lectured me on stabilizers. So we go into recession, we get a stabilizer, and one of them is fiscal oomph. Do we have the fiscal space to commit fiscal oomph if we get a slowdown. Well, the question is, where are we going in the recession? I mean, you know, we're starting from a 3.5% jobless rate. If we get back to 4.5%, you know, that's basically a balanced labor market environment. How much extra fiscal oomph do we really need in that environment? If we're talking about getting to 55 6%, right. then we're going to need something. But I don't see that coming through. The labor market is tight enough, and we saw that from the details of the JOLTS numbers. All the people that entered the labor force, the bulk of them got jobs, which is why the unemployment rate drifted lower, not upwards as expected. Okay, well, let's frame this right now, folks. And this comes back to what I mentioned at the top of the show. The fact is, with revisions, and they'll change again, we've generated a million jobs in 90 days. I, I, you know, Steve and I, that's like, price, that's like economy to perfection. And yet we're talking about negative non-farm payrolls out there somewhere. We're talking about wages out there somewhere, maybe get some inflation. And I'm like, right now, sort of kind of like, no, maybe. But the answer is, what's the Rusciuto timeline here to the kind of labor data that forces a central bank to adjust? I, to me, that's completely ambiguous right now. It is, and I think it's later rather than sooner. I think that's the real net conclusion. If you want to get a best real-time sense of what's happening in the labor market, just continue to follow the weekly unemployment claims. And I know a lot of people <coughs> tried to make a lot of hay out of the revisions to the yeah. claims numbers last week and everything. The reality is you've got to get into that 350-ish type range You're to kidding. really start seeing a deterioration in claims, and we're nowhere near that. This is really important, folks. I mean, I, I haven't brought this up. I'm doing it right now, folks. We can do this on the Bloomberg uh, terminal. I bring up the four. Well, if I could type correctly, that would help. Uh, INJCJC4. There it is. The four-week moving average of the Rusciuto claims um, statistic, 237 right now. I didn't realize it was that high, Stephen. When was the last time we were at three-something? And the answer is oh, a long time ago. 
Yeah, I mean, clearly we, we exceeded that during the COVID recession. But then when you go beyond that, yeah. back to the previous one, remember, we had a 128-month-long <clears throat> expansion uh, that led into the COVID environment. So for you to get into those kind of claims numbers outside of the, the COVID recession, you're going back, you know, 12, 14 years. Okay, well, how do we get back to a 12- or 14-year labor economy? My textbooks say you don't do that unless you have a huge 74, 73, 74 recession. Well, again, getting back to the 315 claims would just be getting you to the the three and the four and a half type unemployment statistic to get to the five and a half percent number. Yeah, you're going to need something more than Mr. Malpass was talking about in terms of the growth numbers for this year and next year, or even for what the Federal Reserve is talking about. Um, and I think the market is discounting that. And I think the reality is what we're seeing is that's not coming to fruition. Even the retail sales numbers that are coming out this Friday, people have a very, very weak head headline number, unit automobile sales held in very, very nicely in the latest right. month, and pricing is holding up. So it's hard to see that we're going to get the 0.5% decline that people are looking for in retail sales. I just looked it up in the Bloomberg while Mr. Rusciuto was informing us, folks, 300,000 pre-pandemic, September of 2014. That's how far away we are from the Rusciuto caution. Well, within that, and I noticed used cars being resilient as well, Stephen, what's the microdata you need to inform our audience of right now, the acclaimed Mizuo microdata away from used cars? Well, I mean, I think what we're looking at in here in, in is just general labor market tightness creating income. And that income is real, the really the driving factor. And I think the fact that used car prices are holding up so well is one of the important indicators right. of showing you the households still have that income to drive the economy. And that's one of the reasons why I think the market's much too presumptuous in terms of the degree of economic slack they're discounting into forward structures of rates. And others, including Neil Dutt at Renaissance, Stephen, would say... If you get some rising income, and even if you get a tepid disinflation, all of a sudden real incomes, inflation-adjusted incomes, they're not gloomy. They maintain some form of constructive tone. Is that the Mizuo model? Without a doubt. And the, I think going even beyond that, when you look at the balance sheet of the household sector and you look at how much income was generated and provided to households during the COVID environment, we still are of the belief that there's substantial amount of firepower left in the consumer and that that additional firepower will keep the economy more resilient. And that then argues for the Federal Reserve to keep rates higher for longer rather than pivoting as the market's anticipating. Well, then what is your GDP number forward? I mean, to the end of the year, 12 months, 2023, as compared to what uh, Mr. Malpass of Bear Stearns and the World Bank just commented on. Well, I mean, our, our view basically is the numbers that the Federal Reserve has laid out, uh, which are basically that we're going to be in the very, very shallow single digits <coughs> Uh, this year, probably in the decimal point, uh, year over year or fourth quarter over fourth quarter type GDP <clears throat> numbers, followed up next year by only a 1.1% in 2024. Um, so we have a bit more weakness in the near term than the official institutions have, uh, but we don't really have much of a rebound either in 2024. Um, and that, I think, is again another differentiating point. Right. Well, then let me finish then with, with what I heard from the managing director in Washington last week, Stephen Rich Trudeau, you and I know how difficult this is to look out five months. 
the IMF with a five-year view, the grimmest since 1990, of 3%-ish sustained five-year GDP, real GDP. Does that get it done for the world? Against the demographics, the answer is probably yes. Part of the reason why you have this grim outlook for the next five years is the demographic situation. Right. Um, you know, the aging of the global population, especially in the industrialized world, the aging of the population in China in particular, uh, where, again, you know, men retire at 55 and women retire at 50. You know, you have a very, very rapidly aging population. And as populations age, you tend <clears throat> to see that reduce the overall potential rate of growth. Stephen Rusciuto, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate that with Mizuo uh, USA. Very informative there. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. then we get this headline from from tesla tom they're building a large new battery factory in drum roll shanghai shanghai this is where the push is for that company at the moment there it is for elon musk and we're going to touch on that right now usually with daniel ives senior equity research analyst at wedbush we go to things larger cap and maybe more stable but today we don't dan on tesla john wants to talk about shanghai and mr musk i want to talk about musky and brand destruction I get the novelty of a price cut, and then a second price cut, and then a third one. Is Elon Musk committing brand destruction? Look, I think right now, I mean, they're being aggressive on price cuts because competition's increasing, and they got to put an iron fence around their customer base. And I think ultimately it's sacrificing margins for volumes, and, right. and that's really the balance right now. I looked uh, on the Masters, which is basically a Mercedes-Benz commercial f wandering around the beauty of the <laughs> golf course, and Mercedes was flogging their electric vehicle. I'm sure I can't get it till 2027. Is that gorgiosity that I saw driving around the Masters, is that car going to compete with Elon? Yeah, look, I think what, what's happened with Mercedes, I think with a lot of the other European players, of course, with Detroit, in terms of you know GM and Ford, competition's increasing across the board. And that's why Tesla and Musk, that's why they're being so aggressive on price cuts, because this is right now an EV arms race that's playing out. They have a queer lead, but that's why the price cuts right now, it's a necessary, I'll call it near-term pain for long-term gain that's so far paying out. Dan, you talked about who's got to stomach the pain. And it's not Tesla, it's the competitors. Dan, as you look at things, some of these big car manufacturers, auto manufacturers on this massive investment cycle to shift towards EV. Dan, who do you think is most vulnerable? Look, I think right now the one that has the most to gain and probably the most to lose is GM. Because I think they've laid out the strategy they marry and the team have done a great job, especially on the battery side. 
But you talk about held to a different standard. I mean, investors are laser focused on the profits, on what that margins is. And for GM, you're competing against Tesla. And that's going to be the uphill battle here. But I believe GM is ultimately going to be successful. It's not a zero-sum game. There's going to be many winners of this green tidal wave playing out. Dan, talk to me about multiples, the appropriate multiple for these companies and how we should think about them. Exactly. Look, I think what you're seeing here, and I think 1Q earnings is going to be a key theme, tech's holding up a lot better than fear. And I think most, you're looking, you go into the 2024 numbers where I think growth, especially areas like software, cybersecurity, you're looking at growth anywhere from 18 to 25%. So I think multiples now are really starting to reflect what I view as a really growth elevated relative to a non-growth environment. And that's why tech is a green light, in my opinion, to own these names. You know, Dan, you don't know this, but John and I are on the phone all weekend. We're watching Liverpool get it done against Arsenal, and we're going back and forth on questions for Ives. And John just nailed it there with where Tesla is in 24 months. Let's say they're making 20 cents on the dollar right now. It's some form of margin down the income statement. Ford Motor's doing half as much, 10 cents on the dollar. Does Tesla migrate from 20 cents on the dollar to 10 cents on the dollar? And as they do it, do they migrate from a tech darling to being a boring auto company? Yeah, and to that debate, I believe there's a line in the sand in terms of price cuts. And also they have the scale that no one else has in terms of from capacity, from a battery perspective. That's really them flexing their muscles again in terms of what you saw with the China news over the weekend. And that's the difference. Right now they have, you know, ultimately a really, I'd say, you know, a multiple race that's happening behind them, but they continue to be the clear leader and they have that margin leverage, which enables them to do these price cuts. Okay, great. But if they have lithium batteries in Shanghai, what do they do? Are they moving over there because the environmental? It's just they're not going to get as much heat from the Chinese government as they are if they plant the plant in Arizona or North Carolina? Look, they're starting to build out in the U.S., but the reality is not just for Tesla, it's for Apple as well. I mean, you, you look at it, that's the hearts and lungs of the supply chain of their production. And I don't really see that changing dramatically in the near term, despite what we're seeing from the 202 area code. And I think that's really what, what we're hearing out of Tesla. And I think that's something investors right. understand that's going to be a balance. And Cook right. is no different in Cupertino. 202 area code, I think that's Washington. Oh, thanks Thank for translating. You. appreciate that. I actually did need that. Dan, just to wrap things up, <clears throat> investments in Russia became stranded assets, particularly after what's developed with Ukraine over the last 12 months or so. Dan, do you see a similar risk on the horizon? How do you think about that issue at the moment with regards to China and Taiwan and some of the investments that US-based companies are making in the mainland at the moment? Look, I think right now it's clearly a broader risk, but, but I think if you look from an investor perspective, it's contained. And I think the China-Taiwan right now, Bark's still worse than a bite, and that's why you look at names like Apple and Tesla, look at what those stocks are doing. I think investors are sort of looking through that risk right now, although obviously it's something in the horizon that, that's ultimately going to be reflected in these stocks. Hey, Dan, this was great. Just wonderful to get your view on things. And because every second here with this incredibly important guest is important, we're going to get right to it with a gentleman from King's College uh, in Cambridge. Adam Toos joins us now with Columbia uh, University, but that barely describes his con contribution to this discussion we're having 
on what our world looks like out one year, two years, three years. What's the difference between King's College and Queen's College at Cambridge? Like, do they, do they <laughs> different fight monarchs? Each, do they fight each other at rugby? Different chapels. Did they, different chapels. Yeah. Punt wars, rowing competitions. Are they like far apart from each other at Cambridge? Uh, no, they're like a two minutes walk. Two they, minutes they back walk. onto each other, in fact. Okay, but they're barely on speaking. We should get you and L. Ariane at some but point. Kudos to Mohammed for doing that job. That's it, uh, it's a <clears throat> really an impressive contribution he's making. It's an he was very emotional about it. Actually, yeah. I, I, I mentioned it to him, and he said, "What's so important? He didn't expect this. Was these." super bright kids from really difficult backgrounds that have to make this huge jump to the highfalutin culture of Cambridge University. It yeah, really, it can be quite forbidding. It was inti yeah, intimidating. Yeah, yeah. Right now, we're going to intimidate ourselves for the most important essay into these IMF meetings with great respect to Adam Posen, who I thought had a great essay on globalization. Adam Tews in the Financial Times, where he writes often with a superb essay on the state of where we are in this new higher inflation. At the beginning of your essay, Professor Tews, you speak about we're trying to have pain-free crises. I spoke to a, a leading government official in 2008 about this, where we're trying to let the zombies zombie out. We're trying to not have moral hazard. We're trying to be pain-free in our crises. How do we get out of that difficult process? Well, it's a funny way of describing the, the world of last year, right? I mean, in the sense that the bond market took the biggest <clears throat> hit in its history. And what I'm kind of focused on there is this question of how the double whammy of this sudden, sudden unexpected surge in inflation and the concomitant increase in interest rates, what that does to the balance of the biggest market that really matters, the fixed income market. And there is this huge trillion dollar shift underway. Um, part of it is simply lost to and on the accounts of the fixed income investors. Part of it's a kind of real transfer in that if we have a sudden shock, mm -hmm. an unanticipated shock to the price level, it shifts the balance between creditors and debtors. And we are seeing swings, say, in the debt to GDP ratio, which is right. the standard measure of fiscal space that we've never seen before. 20% shifts in the right. US debt to GDP level over a matter of 18 months to two years. On Mondays, we do math later in the conversation. We'll get to that in a moment. You end your wonderful essay by parsing the haves and the have-nots. The cynics out there will say, with this blow up and with this huge surge in interest rates, by definition, the haves, the elites win and everybody else is crushed. Is it that gloomy? We're not seeing that in the data so far, right? Because the people who have money on the line in the fixed income market are generally the haves, right? This is the top end mm -hmm. of the income distribution. The entire struggle, if you like, between taxpayers on one end of this and bondholders on the other is played out in the top 20 to 30% of the wealth distribution. Mm -hmm. The question I ask at the end, and I think we all have to be cognizant of, is what's happening to those folks who basically live paycheck to paycheck. They're in a flow economy, not a stock economy. And what we've seen across the world for all of the talk right. of wage price spirals is falling real wages. And that we really need to be laser focused on as a long-term effect of this sudden unanticipated inflation. There was a huge study at London School of Economics where you worked, I think of Robbins and back before that. Uh, uh, beverage, are we in for a slog here, as the managing director of the IMF talked about last week, a sub-3%, David Malpass out moments ago with 2%. Is it a slog for the next five years with permanent uh, weak real wages? I think it critically depends on where you look in the world economy. And I think that's where the IMF World Bank gloom is coming from. If you look at the emerging market low income world, mm -hmm. we're definitely in a slog scenario. Their recovery from COVID was much, much 
tamer. Indeed, in many countries, it's barely happened. Whereas in the United States, we're dealing with a, a very strange situation of a really buoyant labor market, but with falling real wages for much of the time, right? Month after month, mm -hmm. we've seen falling real wages. So it's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a strange right. reallocation of priorities, uh, a rebalancing between employers and workers. There's an incredible common ground between Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard and Olivier Blanchard of a school down the river called Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And of course, between the two, they look at the future and they say, what will growth be? Olivier Blanchard suggests a more lower permanent R starred. Maybe there's many uh, with him. And Ken Rogoff is much more suspect of, of new high permanence to inflation. Where do you fit into that debate? I'm somebody who I think thinks we're going to find it hard to get back to 2%, right? I think that is really going to be where the rubber mm -hmm. hits the road. The, the, the decisions right now, I think, are relatively straightforward. And Richard Clarida, writing in The Economist last week, he's been such a friend of the show on our Fed days. He agrees with you. Clarida, as a former yeah. vice chairman, goes, you got to go 2.xx. Yeah. Because I just don't see the the final squeeze down, the the pain is going to be massively disproportionate for the benefit that mm -hmm. we get there. Bringing inflation under control when you're in the eight to ten percent range, <clears throat> right. you do it. But once you get down in the four to two percent, this is also a Blanchard point, right? You really have to begin to think hard about what the trade-offs are at that level. We're some way away from having that problem right. quite yet, but you know that I think for Europe as well is going to be a really tough choice. In everyone's life, there's a moment where it crystallizes. One of them for me was when my grandfather showed me his bond book from the 1920s, and one day he made a 3% coupon. All of Sicano babble. what's it mean for investment? Do we get to, uh, forget about transitory in the, in the babble now, but do we get to a new permanence of a lower rate regime in investment? I think the tendency is to go back there. I don't think we are going to stay at the kind of interest rates that we're currently at. Are we going to go back to the zero rate, the negative rate world that Japan and Europe are inhabiting? About that. yeah. That's, that's yeah. off the table now, I think. <clears throat> and so the balance shifts there into a world where you have to pay for money, but you're not paying, you're not paying hard if you're in the privileged group. Out there in the emerging market, right. low-income world, it's tougher. There the rates are in the nosebleed territory. We welcome all of you, and particularly on Bloomberg Radio, Adam Tews with us of Columbia University as we begin our coverage of the IMF and the World Bank uh, into this week in Washington uh, tomorrow. Okay, let's go there, Adam. Everybody's woke up on a Monday morning. Italy. Italy has had a debt improvement that is absolutely superb. Explain why it is a mystery. It is a fog of optimism where Italy is in much more trouble than the recent numbers on debt to GDP would say. Yeah, I mean, Italy's the classic case of a nominal GDP recovery, right? This is what we've been begging for for years now, just mm -hmm. some juice in the European economy. We've got juice. We've got juice. We saw a 7% dip in the debt to GDP ratio. That takes us out of terror territory, right? It takes us out of the territory where we constantly worry about Italian <laughs> spreads. We also have a backstop from the ECB. The longer term questions are really all about whether you can sustain that when inflation does come down. And that's where the worry is. You were citing earlier on the demographic numbers for Italy. Mm -hmm. But demographic, I think we shouldn't overdo the, 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 the biological oh, element Oh, come on. It here. makes for good TV on it, a Monday. It's about politics. It's oh, about dear. institutions. The crucial factor with Italy is not so much as it were the quantity of labor. It's the quality of labor. It's the capital they have to work with. It's investment.
investment. It's investment in the university system in Italy, which is incredibly dilapidated at this point. Mm -hmm. It's rebalancing public expenditure, which is hard to do from the old to the young so right. as to dynamize growth. You do that, you don't have to worry that much about the demographic side of this as the key driver, right? So I think it's really about the politics and we see how hard those are in France, right? You try and move the retirement right. age by two years and you have something akin to an uprising. Right. So figuring out a good politics of this shift, of how we mobilize an aging population and maximize the quality of labor that's mm -hmm. available, that's where I think the smart politics needs to be. Oh, we're going to continue this discussion. We're out of time, Adam, but you've got to come back and we've got to do like an hour discussion or something. We have to figure yeah, this out. Adam, too, is leading off intellectually, I think, for all of these IMF meetings, really the first post-pandemic meetings we've had with a phenomenal essay in the FT. I'll get it out to you here. I put it out a number of times in the last number of days. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.